I'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, it'll be our last time to look at verses 3 to 8. Last time to look at verses 3 to 8. I'm going to talk to you about serving gifts. Serving gifts. And uh, the gifts mentioned in this section, in chapter 12, are called by Bible teachers usually the serving gifts. These are certain abilities given to us by the Holy Spirit through which we are able to serve one another. Now, we receive these gifts from the Holy Spirit when we're born again. Now, the Bible uses these, these metaphors of birth. So, when you were born, you were pre-programmed, predisposed, in a sense, to certain strengths and weaknesses, to certain natural proclivities. And then when you are born again, when the Holy Spirit regenerates you and gives you this new life, He also brings with you these spiritual gifts, these spiritual proclivities, abilities, or strengths, or inclinations. Now, every believer has at least one of these gifts, and often Christians each have more than one of the spiritual gifts. Now, the list here in Romans chapter 12 is probably not comprehensive. Uh, some Bible teachers say that there could be a hundred or more spiritual gifts. Then others say that it's literally uncountable the number of spiritual gifts a person may have, depending upon the pairings, the mixtures, the strength and weaknesses of the spiritual gifts. You may think of the spiritual gifts in this, in this, uh, in this way, that when you need, when the Holy Spirit needs to use you in some way, He will very often enable you to function in that unique way that's out of the norm for you. For instance, in January of 1850, I think it was 1850, it was 1854, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was, making his, was walking to his grandfather's church. And Spurgeon was, was not a Christian, he was not converted. And while he was walking to his grandfather's church, the snow in London, or around London, was, was so bad that he couldn't, he couldn't make the trip. He's like, it's just too dang cold. And so he's on his way to a congregational church, so he was forced to turn into a, Wesley, to a Calvinistic Methodist church. And he went into that church, and he went in and he sat down, and the weather was so bad that even the preacher couldn't show up. And so just a, a layman and then a few people sitting around. And, you know, they, they waited till you know, 11 o'clock, and the preacher hadn't got there. So we waited till 11, 10, 11, 15. No preacher's showing up. And so the layman gets in the pulpit, turns to Isaiah 45, and just says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And the guy just starts saying, he says, You know, it's not about working your way to heaven. It's not about baptizing your way to heaven or buying your way into heaven. It's about looking your way into heaven. All you got to do is look. Look unto me, look unto Jesus, look unto Christ and be ye saved. Just keep looking, looking unto Christ. Don't look to yourself, don't look anywhere, just look, at, look unto Christ. And he just, about 10 minutes of the worst sermon possible, hermeneutically speaking. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit working through that guy, Charles Spurgeon's eyes were opened and he realized that he had been indeed looking at the wrong place for salvation. He'd been looking to reformation, trying to make himself a better man. He'd been looking at repentance. If he could just repent enough, then maybe he could receive salvation. But he realized what he needed to do was to look and live. 
look to Christ and live. And so in that moment, the Holy Spirit working through the guy enabled him to preach with an unction that bore fruit. And I think that probably in your Christian life, you've experienced the same thing, where you wouldn't normally say, this is my strength, this is my wheelhouse. But in that moment, when you yielded yourself to the Lord and said, okay, I guess it's up to me to do something here. And the Lord has worked through you in these special ways. So the spiritual giftings, they, they, you, may, you may be like me and, and kind of live in a perpetual state of uncertainty about what your spiritual gift is. But from time to time, you know as you yield yourself to the Lord, you can trust the Lord to work through you. Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when they deliver you up before your enemies, do not think about what you're going to say. Don't, don't, don't think about being cagey and, and sneaky and careful with your words. Just speak and the Holy Spirit will speak through you. All right? So this list here in chapter 12 is probably not comprehensive because there are other gifts also mentioned in other places. That would be 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, like all natural abilities and gifts, our spiritual gifts get better with use. They get better with use, and we become more skilled as we use them. Now, some gifts are paired like peanut butter and jelly. They're made for each other. Peanut butter and jelly, amen? Made for each other. And peanut butter and strawberry is superior to peanut butter and grape. That's all there is to it. If you put grape jelly on your... You can get out. (laughs) And then there are other pairings of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're like jalapeno jelly. A little little unusual, but delicious. (laughs) Now, the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul here in his letter to the Romans to list seven gifts. But the gift of prophecy is more a calling than a gift, I would say. Now, that statement that I'm making there is somewhat controversial. It doesn't seem like it would be, but it is, because our charismatic brothers and sisters, they feel that every believer is a prophet. Now, I plan to talk about the sign gifts and the charismatics a little bit on the 29th, because next Sunday is Victory Banquet Sunday, and next Sunday, I intend to really preach the house down about various things. And so, if you want to hear a really magnificent sermon, come next Sunday, and then... uh, We're also having a free meal, so you'll be, you know, if the sermon's not good, the food will be. Now, my view is that prophecy here is synonymous with the preaching office. And since not everyone is called to preach or even permitted to preach, we can say not everyone is a prophet. Now, the call to preach is hard to explain, but those who have been called, they know they've been called. And they know it just as, assured, just as assuredly as they know that Jesus Christ has called them to come to him for salvation. Now, one of the gifts in this reading today is the gift of teaching. Now, this is different from being a prophet or from the prophetic gift. Now, it's a faithful saying that all preachers are teachers, but not all teachers are preachers. Now, our church here has a lot of fine Bible teachers in it, both men and women. But they're not preachers. And they know they're not preachers because they know that they ain't called to preach. I pastored a church in uh, Oklahoma for, I guess, how long were we there, Valerie? Nine years, about nine years. And there were two guys in the church who were gifted, gifted teachers. They were really good. Uh, one guy was really good because his favorite thing to do was listen to five, five good sermons during the week on the t- passage he was working on. And then he would kind of make his sermon kind of from the parts he learned from that, which is just like reading five commentaries, which is what I do, you know. Or go to goodsermon.com and hit download. 
<laughs> so that guy was very gifted, and this other guy also was very gifted as well. Now, he, was, he, was, he had a much different approach. He hated to read, period. And he would say, he said, I remember, I, he said, I can't remember the last time I read a book. But he also was a gifted teacher. And I asked those guys when I got there, I said, why in the world didn't you guys just lead this thing and just, you know, kind of tag team it like a dynamic duo? And they both said, we are not called to be pastors. We're not called. I think, I think, well, I think most people who have been in church a long time, have been, teach, have been teachers, they know that. To be a preacher is to be a pastor, in my opinion. And that is a unique calling, and not everybody has it. And believe me, um, it, it, is a, it is a glorious occupation. But you've you got to know you're called. So let's take a reading now from chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Prophecy. This is the preacher. The preacher, he must believe what he preaches. Prophesying in accor- according to the, his faith, what he believes. Now, there's also this sense that he must be sure that he believes what he preaches. And he also must be sure that he preaches the faith. The Apostle Paul and the New Testament use the term the faith as a representative phrase of the whole body of Christian doctrine, the faith. We contend for the faith, Jude chapter, 20, Jude chapter 22. <laughs> Jude, verse 22. Jude, verse 22 says, earnestly contending for the faith. And that word contending for the faith is a fascinating word because it means to wrestle like face to face. Now, have you ever been in a fight where it was root hog or die? If it's soft, tear it off. I mean, a real fight face to face, just just grinding it out. A real struggle for your life. One of my best friends at 35 decided to become an MMA fighter. You know, I don't know if it was an early midlife crisis or what. But, I mean, that's a little late to start out in the fighting game. But I, I watched him in a fight in the octagon. And he wrestled this dude down. And this is my friend. He's a Christian dude. He's, he wrestled this guy down, was sitting on top of him. You know, got him in a chokehold, and you know, the guy's face is turning purple. And finally, the guy squirmed loose, and my friend is sitting on top of him. And my friend just starts bam, 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 going to town on him. And the referee ain't saying anything. This guy is, and he knocked the guy out, and he's still hitting him. And he stops and looks at the referee and goes, and the referee says, Keep going. <laughs> and he, he, he just tapped him a couple more times, and then the, the referee, you know, called the fight over. But if you ever watch an MMA fight or something like that, that's, those guys, that, that's the kind of fighting that I've experienced in my life. Not a lot of toe-to-toe, you know, Rocky Balboa style, but a lot of getting on the ground and hurting each other. That's exactly the Greek term used for contending for the faith. Contending for the faith. To fight for the faith. To be willing to go to the mat for what the Bible says. To be willing to risk it all. The Apostle Paul said to the people of Galatia, he said, Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, the answer to that question was yes, he did become their enemy because he told them they were in serious error. 
And being a preacher, being a pastor means you contend for the faith, you fight for the faith. There is a pugnacious element to being a Christian minister. Now, you're not supposed to be a physical pugilist. Because in the Bible, it says this. This is interesting. give you some idea about, about the work of a pastor. It says a pastor is not to be a striker. No hitting is allowed. You say, why would, why would, why would Paul tell preachers not to hit anybody? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Because the temptation will be there. And you say, well, I don't think too much of what you're saying. That's what the Bible says, okay? You know, if the Bible gives you a warning about something, it means, because we know how passions can get stirred up. And religious passions can become so hot. Now, you're supposed to be a faithful preacher, preaching the word. Acts 17.11 says that the Bereans, when they heard Paul come and preach to them, that they were more faithful than those at Thessalonica because when they heard what Paul said, they took it in, then they compared Paul's message to what Scripture actually said. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse number 2, just the first three words, Paul told Timothy to be sure that he preaches the word. Preach the word. Now, to be a prophetic voice means that your message is God's message and it's God's truth. And not everyone likes the truth even within side of a Christian church. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to the reading from verses 1 to 5. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. This is Paul writing to a young preacher named Timothy. There will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This is what you can encounter inside a Christian church. Because not everybody inside a Christian church is led by the Spirit, not everyone inside a Christian church is actually born again of the Spirit. They're, old, they're, they're, they're like an old wild bronc. And you throw a rope on them, you get them inside the church, and you got to gentle them. you got to get them calmed down, get them used to wearing a bit and bridling, having a saddle. And every once in a while, even the best horse is going to act crazy, Right? I had a, the church I pastored in Oklahoma, the, the guy before me who was there for, uh, I guess, about a decade or so, he had, some, he, had some tough, he had some difficulties in his ministry, and some of the guys were talking about him after he left, and um, they said, you know, he was just blah, 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 and I said, well, you know, e- even, even a good dog will bite you sometimes when they're hurting. You ever had a dog? You ever had a good dog? Good dogs are easy to find. A good cat, never find <laughs> but you could have a good dog and that dog have a thorn in his little foot or some kind of little wound on him you could be trying to doctor him up and he can snap you and get you can he he can nip you because even a good dog when he's hurt will do that sometimes christian people sometimes the reason why christian people act bad 
is because they're hurt. Something's happening, they don't quite know how to deal with it or handle it, and so they snap at you, at me, at everybody, because they're in pain, they're in pain. So the, a pastor, he has to kind of brace himself for this kind of thing. And a prophet and a preacher, he must keep his attitude in check. The Apostle Paul reminds him in, in, in Paul's letter to Timothy to... You know, I turned away from it, so I'm not going to turn back and read it because the sermon is going to be kind of long. Now, the best thing a pastor can do in a pastoral office is to remember that the people over whom he watches and feeds are not his people. They're God's people. They belong to Jesus, right? They belong to Jesus. Now, have you ever have you ever done dog sitting? Watch somebody's dog. Now, and they bring their dog over to your house to play with your dogs while they're out of town, right? Your your dog city. Have you ever had that heart sinking feeling when the dog you're watching gets out of the house and runs off? And you're worried about your neighbor's dog. And man, you go crazy hunting for it. And you finally find it and you get it home and you put a padlock on its collar and chain it up in the basement so it can never get out again. But you, you really are very careful with other people's stuff, right? Other people's stuff. You, and so a pastor has to remember that you're not my people, you're God's people. You belong to Jesus. And i got to watch over you. I'm working on his behalf, on his behalf. That doesn't mean that I am a little Jesus. It just means I have a responsibility, a stewardship. Every pastor does. So that's why the, the prophetic office, I think, is a calling just to a specific kind of service that is, uh, is unique. Now let's move ahead to what, to what you guys need to do, okay? Verse number 7. The apostle mentions this thing called service. If service in our serving... Now, this is service in a practical way. The Greek here is the same word that's rendered service or minister that we, from which we get the word deacon, which has led some theologians to say that this particular set of gifting where it's physical service is only for deacons. Now, I think that's a great interpretation, don't you? Because who gets to do all the work then? The deacons. <laughs> Sadly, doesn't seem to be the case. This is the kind of service that we're all supposed to, to, to think about. You may have this particular gift of serving. Now, this is service in a practical way. Now, Christianity is a, is a, is a thinking religion, a religion of, 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 of intelligence, you might say, or education, but there's also a practical side to, <laughs> to Christianity. You want to hear a funny story? This is a funny story. There was a lady in this little town in the Midwest, and this is, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but it's, it's well said, it's well traveled. And she was praying that the liquor store in her town would burn down. And she was praying, dear Lord, let the liquor store burn down. And finally, you know, she went to her pastor and, and she said, she said, Pastor, you know, I've been really praying about something and I don't know, you know, nothing's happening. And he said, ma'am, sometimes you got to put feet to your prayer. He didn't know what she's praying about. So the next day, the liquor store burned down. <laughs> she put feet to her prayer. <laughs> you know, there is a practical side to Christianity where sometimes Christianity is about doing stuff. That's the practical 
things, helping people with physical needs, like mowing or cleaning, cooking, washing, giving a ride. This is the kind of thing that can be, can, that can be done with our hands and our feet. Now, within the church, it's, it's also that kind of thing. It's custodial work, putting out the chairs, working in the nursery, mowing, you know, painting the steeple, all the kinds of stuff that, that just can be done with the hands. Not everybody has the spiritual gifts of teaching or, or prophecy. Not everybody is a really great encourager either. But a lot of people, can just, they, just, they can serve. And there's all these things that we do. We're serving one another in the church. The deacons of a church usually take on a lot of the service elements. If you look at Acts chapter 6, you see that the first deacons, they appeared on the scene because the apostles were overcome with their praying and teaching ministries. And then they were supposed to do some physical serving stuff as well, taking care of the widows in the fellowship, that they decided to delegate the service side to the deacons, to the diaconate. And so then that service appeared in the church. You can see Acts chapter 6 about that. It's a practical kind of ministry of working with working for other people with hands and feet. Now, number three is teaching. Look at verse 7. The one who teaches in his teaching. We're supposed to use them. That's the key phrase. Now, if you have a, a King James Version or NIV, you don't have the phrase, let us use them. It doesn't say anything. Only the New American Standard and the ESV say Something like use these gifts. So the teachers should teach. Now this teaching gift is the ability to pass on information. Not gossip, <laughs> but information from the Bible. This is a gift of systematics, you might say. Now my friend Don Fortner, who I mentioned fa- fairly frequently, he was a preacher, but Don was not a teacher. Now he wrote a book of theology that I have on my shelf. It's called Basic Bible Doctrines. It's 630 pages of Don's opinion about everything. <laughs> Don didn't know everything, but what he, didn't, what he did know, he was never doubtful about. I mean, he never, he never, I could ask him any question about anything, and he was never in doubt. He never said, I don't know either. <laughs> he always had an answer for everything. Now, it's fun to read because that is fun to read. Very clear. He doesn't allow you the liberty of thinking. He just says, this is the way it is. Like it or lump it. And then that's kind of attractive, you know. But then you have John Gill, who I also mention quite frequently. He wrote a systematic theology of Bible doctrines, wherein he references the Jewish scholars, the church fathers, the Greek fathers, and he gives a robust presentation of truth in a systematic way, and he both poses questions and answers questions, and he only uses about one period a page. It's phrase, semicolon, phrase, semicolon, phrase, semicolon, phrase, semicolon. Very frustrating to read. It's the old style of writing. Not quite as much fun as Don to read, but it's much more comprehensive, much more systematic. And when you're done reading John Gill's commentary or his systematic theology, you're going to really know something. He's an excellent teacher. He has the gift of unfolding. Now, this kind of teaching can be done in a classroom or one-on-one with people. And what it is, it's helping people to see the meaning of the Bible more clearly. The gift of teaching could be called the ability to unfold. Now, take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 18, and I'll show you an example of this kind of thing, where both a man and a woman help a preacher 
understand something more fully. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the, thing, the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, this is a man and a woman who had more enlightenment, more information, who had the teaching gift, it would seem. They should explain the way of God to him more accurately. And we wished to cross to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For powerfully he refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So here are two people who are not in the prophetic office or the pastoral office, but they have the gift of teaching, the gift of unfolding, and they help him understand something more clearly, the gift of teaching. Now, we kind of all know how the gift of teaching works because not everybody who is a teacher in the public school system or any kind of educational system, not all teachers have the gift of teaching, do they? But then there are those teachers who really are good at it. They have the ability to connect. They have the ability to bring big concepts down to, into bite-sized nuggets so we can understand them. And this is true not only in teaching information or scholastic subjects, but it's also true in the trades. There are some tradesmen who are really skilled at their jobs, but they're not very good teachers. You ever been around somebody like that? You don't want to be apprenticed to somebody who doesn't, who's not a good teacher. But then you can work with somebody who is a tradesman who's highly, he's very teachable, which usually means they're really what? Patient. Patient. Helping people see. Allowing people to connect the dots and not getting frustrated with them. Now, that's why oftentimes, no, I'm not going to say that. Number four, encouraging and exhorting. Verse eight, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Now, interestingly enough, John MacArthur says something quite insightful here. In his sermon from this passage, he says that music must play a part in this because music can be so encouraging to us. Now, we don't often think of the gift of music or the gift of musical ability, but he says there it is. Music is an encouragement to people. It is an encouragement. And then, if you think about it, let your mind kind of wander a little bit. In the middle of your Bible, you have Psalms, the Psalms, which are 150 songs. Now, in your translation of God's Word and mine, you'll, you, it's, no, it's no fun to sing the Psalms like they are. But if you go online, you can Google metrical Psalms. What can you Google? Everybody, metrical Psalms. Let's say it again. Metrical Psalms. What are we going to sing from now on around here? <laughs> metrical Psalms. 
And these are the psalms that have been modified in English so they rhyme a little bit so you can sing them. I had a little book of metrical psalms, but I lent it to somebody here in the church for their own personal use. And it, it's, it's really cool. You can get access to them. And you can, it makes the psalms easy to sing. And for hundreds of years, Christians, when they met together on the Lord's days before Christians stopped singing because there was about a 200-year period where Christians didn't sing at all, which is a very interesting story that I would love to tell you. We don't have time. But until that time, they sang the Psalms almost exclusively. And what happens when you sing the Psalms almost exclusively is you memorize the lyrics. I started to break into, so you guys know how you, you're riding down the road listening to the radio, and you, have, you, have you ever intentionally memorized the lyrics to a song? I haven't done very many, but I've, been, but I've memorized lots of songs, you know, just listening to them. And then going to church, all the hymns, you know. Here's an example. Amazing grace, how that saved a, I once was, but now I'm. See, you guys memorize all this stuff. On a hill far away stood a what? Yeah. So you memorize all that stuff, but you don't realize it. But there was a time in Christian history when Christians sang the Psalms so much, we could have done the same thing with any of the Psalms. The Lord is my, I shall not. He maketh me to. <clears throat> you guys memorize that sometime probably. Or you've read it a lot or heard it. But music can be so encouraging to us. And in the Christian church, I think that's why we have so much conflict in Christian churches over music sometimes is because it can be such a source of encouragement and the devil likes to wreck our vibe. He likes to get us at odds with one another by different things. But, and then you have Psalms, then you have Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, and Colossians 3, 16, and then you have the promise of Christ in Hebrews chapter 12 where Christ says, I will sing in the midst of the congregation, which is kind of a mind-blowing reality. So singing is a part of this probably. Now there are other ways for encouragement to be manifested as well by encouraging people to leave sinful living encouraging people to trust God or reminding people that this phase of their life, although it is so rotten and so horrible, that this is not the end, this is not the full summation of your life, that this probably will come and go. The gift of encouragement is the ability to infuse others with strength. You are one of those persons who's a Proverbs 24 person who can speak a, a certain word at just the right time. Proverbs says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. You ever seen a rodeo belt buckle? It's all silver and beautiful, and then there's little bits of gold in it that really set it off. You, that's a person who God uses to give verbal encouragement to people. And I can say right now, in this room, there's a lot of people who've encouraged me. And I, to be honest with you, I don't know that I've ever really encouraged anybody else. I've received a lot of encouragement. But there are those people who are lifter-uppers and not dragger-downers. This is what the gift of encouragement is. And then in verse number 8, the fifth, the fifth gift here is giving. Giving. The one who contributes in his generosity. Now, 
One writer says that the Greek word here, metadidus, means a super giving. Maybe like extravagant giving, which I thought was fascinating. But only one guy says that. And so it may not be so. I didn't see this as a universal interpretation of the word, but it's worth a minute because I have been around people who have done very well in their lives financially, and God seems to give them a special joy and generosity in just giving. In just giving. And they don't really, and they don't want to plaque on the wall or to be noticed. They just, when there's a need in the church, they have the resources, they just write a, they write a check. There was a couple in our church in Oklahoma one time, we were doing some remodeling, and they wrote a check for 30000 bucks and put it in the offering. I was, I don't, I mean, I only know who it is because the treasurer told me, he's like, man, somebody give a big offering. I was like, well, who was it? Well, I don't want to say. I was like, how come you don't want to say? Well, I don't want to say. I, Tell me! <laughs> I had to get prophetic. <laughs> And then I made sure that their that their, I made sure their parking place was ready every Sunday. I made sure they had a padded pew, but they had water <laughs> and Kleenexes. Man, I watched. <laughs> My mama didn't raise no fool. So there are those people who have this gift of just they just like to give. They don't have to be cajoled, cajoled or prodded. They just there's a need. They just give, and that could be. They, and I think that there probably is some merit to that super giving idea. But the word, from all of the, everything I can see about it, basically means sharing what you have, which means that you have a generous spirit, even though you possibly don't have wealth. There's a lady in our church in Texas. Who, she lived in a little sharecropper type of house on a little piece of land that her husband had bought. Her husband, her husband was not a Christian man. He was a, he was a drunkard, and he wasn't, he wasn't that snappy of a dude. But all the way up into, into 2005, in that little house, she had a little two-room house, a kitchen and a bedroom, because she still had an outhouse. 2005. 2005. She still had a wood cook stove. This is 55 miles north of Austin, Texas. Still cooking with a cook stove. And that lady, she was so generous. Because what she had, she shared. Nothing melted her butter quite like making food and taking it to people. She used to make this okra gumbo, and she'd bring it around in a, in a quart mason jar. Man, it, it was just, it was so good. She, whenever she made kolaches, you guys know what a kolache is? It's like a pig in a blanket, you know, a little bit of sausage wrapped in yeast bread. She'd bring those, she'd bring a big bowl of those things around. She made these little cupcakes, cream-filled cupcakes. Just, just, just generous. She had very little money, but she did for people what she could do for people. She had a generous spirit. She loved to help. Now, we should all be giving like this. There is an element in which, in which all Christians should be giving. Now, in, in our day, most of us get, do most of our giving through financial offerings, but that's not the only way to give. But it is a way to give. And I don't want to beat you up about, about, about money too much, except that the Bible te- says 
that if you give money, God will bless you for it. God will bless you for it. Now, sometimes we give out of our abundance. Man, in my church in Arkansas one time was during one of the, uh, I think it was during the Bush years or Obama years, I can't remember. But he came to me. One of the presidents gave everybody 600 bucks or something that year. I can't remember which one it was, if it was Obama or Bush. But he said, we're going to give, we're just going to, we're just going to give our, our money. We don't need it. Now, Valor and I, when we got our little slice of it, we had plans for it. Because we weren't giving out of our abundance <laughs> at that time. But they were in a situation in life where they gave out of their abundance. Now, we wrote a little $60 tithe check off of it because we were giving out of our, our lack. But our giving opened the windows of heaven. And I want to say this to you. If you'll give, you'll open the windows of heaven on yourself. God says, Malachi 3.10, try me and see. See if I won't pour you out a blessing. Pour you out a blessing. God says, if you do this, I will open the windows of heaven. He says, if you give an offering, I'll bless you for it. Now, either God's a liar or he's just pretending, right? Now, God doesn't lie to us. So, so think about that. Be a, a giving person. You may say, well, I'm not sure I have the gift of giving. You might be surprised. You might give of yourself or of your goods, and you might find that it just makes you so doggone happy that you realize that's what I should do. Now, there are some people whose lives become so busy that the only place they can functionally serve in a church besides showing up on Sundays is through giving. Some jobs and some of, our, some of, some of, some of, our, uh, some of us, we have so many spinning plates, we are super busy. We don't really have time to come down and help do things at the church like we would want to, so we give. There's different ways to think about it. Number six, you guys ready for number six? If you want me to finish this sermon, say amen. Because we're real close. We're real close, and I think the time is okay. I think it's, we're 35 minutes in, according to that clock right there. How long does it feel, though? Just feels like a minute, doesn't it? <laughs> Leadership administration. Look at verse 8 again. The one who leads with zeal. Probably the, probably the synonym for this is in 1 Corinthians 12, where it's the gift of governments, the gift of of oversight. This is a person who has the ability to organize or mobilize and supervise projects or help a church get organized. It's the ability to get things done. Now, this church, this particular church here, Faith Baptist Church, we have a lot of people who do that now. We have a lot of things going on that a lot of us are not aware of, but these things are taking place. A lot of ministries are, are being carried on and organized by people in this church, a lot of, lot of things are happening. A lot of great things are happening. And a lot of things for the future are happening. We could say that this ability is the ability to delegate. Now, if you're going to be a good delegator, something there's a skill that comes along with that, and it's the ability to spot potential or strengths in people. Because you don't want to give somebody a job they can't do, Right? So it's the ability to assess situations and see, I need to do this, I need to get this person involved and move them here, and they'll take care of it. Not everybody has that gift. He who speaketh unto you doth not have that gift. But the Lord has surrounded me 
with people who have that gift. And what I got to do is have the good sense to let those people do it and kind of submit to them sometimes, which goes against my better judgment. <laughs> Number seven, mercy. Mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is that person who, has, who shows sympathy and sensitivity to those who are suffering or, or are in dark times. It is the ability to ease the suffering of people by bringing cheer to them by compassionate understanding of people. There are some people who you do not want to say, hey, I'm having a bad day too, right? And there are some people who you want to say it to because you know they're, what they're, you, you kind of know what they're going to say. They're going to encourage you and lift you up. If you come and say to me, Terry, I'm having a bad day, you might hear suck it up, buttercup, or some other Christian cliche. <laughs> or you might hear, you know, it's going to be all right. You're going, to make, you're going to make it. Sometimes the gift of mercy is helping people see through the static. I was talking with a man and woman in my church in Arkansas one time. They had come to me, and she, she, had, she lost her job because she worked for a physician, and he retired. She lost her job, and then he, were, he had a job where he was, he was kind of in a locked in, no advancement, uh, not, not a super great paying job, but between the two of them, they made plenty of money. And then she lost her job. Her parents got sick. She had to care for them, so she couldn't really get another job. And they were just in a bad spot. And then her mother died. And her father was just was not long for this world, and she's caring for him. And, and, and they got behind on their mortgage payment and different stuff. And they had a car, a car they, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they got behind on the payments for the car. You know how things just, you know how things just snowball, right? And they came, we were, we were sitting in my, I was sitting in their living room actually talking to them because they, they quit coming to church and I went by to see them to see what, what the deal was and she just said, poosh, laid it all out there. Now, I didn't have deep pockets to write them a big fat juicy check. I wish I could have. I didn't have a great lead on a job for her. But all I really did was say, let's think about this in increments, in steps. And we just kind of, made an informal plan for how they should approach these problems. And when we left, they were so happy. They were so encouraged because their life was just a bowl of spaghetti. Everything was just all twisted and yucky and gooey. And all I did was come along and without even realizing it, I helped separate the spaghetti a little bit. And they took care of everything on their own. Now, in that moment, I, I've looked back at that a lot of times and, and hope that I've been able to be as much of a blessing to other people. But in that particular moment, I think I can say this because I am a miserable comforter. Ask Valerie. I think in that particular moment, the Holy Spirit helped me to help them. That wouldn't be my, wouldn't be my normal way of working. But in that moment, I think the Holy Spirit used me in a way he didn't normally do it. But that's what the gift of mercy can be. This compassion for people. Because, you know, somebody tells you they have financial problems. When somebody says that to you, man, they're really opening themselves up to you because there's nothing more embarrassing than telling, saying you got money problems. But in that moment, I could have said, well, you should have thought about that. Don't y'all save money? Then you know you're going to lose your job? <laughs> Couldn't you see it coming? 
Let your mom and dad fend for themselves. I mean, there's all kinds of, of, of uh, jerky things you could have said. But you know how it goes. Moving on. Hey, that's the end of the sermon. So there we have it. Ways we serve our brothers. Now here's, here's a summary of these gifts from John MacArthur. As a summary. It's brief, believe it or not. Prophecy is proclamation. Ministry, that's operation. Teaching is systematization. Systemization? Systematization? Exhortation, that's motivation. Giving is implication. Ruling is mobilization. And showing mercy, that's commiseration. Now I'm going to give you four parting shots, all right? This is from Warren Wiersbe. Every believer has a different gift, and God has bestowed these gifts to the local body so that it can grow in a balanced way. But each Christian must exercise his or her gift by faith. We may not see the result of our ministry, but the Lord sees it and he blesses. So we serve in faith. We sow in faith. We don't do to get. We do because it's right and proper and trust the Lord with the results. Second parting shot. In verse 6, the ESV and the NASB, they both say, let us use them or let us be careful to use them. Now, only those two translations add this little exhortation to us to serve God. But I think I could just use it like this to say, friends, we need to get off the couch and start serving God. Serve the Lord. Do something. Three, don't freak out if you don't know what your spiritual gift is. Last week we gave a link on the website, different places, to take a spiritual gift test. I took the test. Valerie took the test. Lacey took the test to kind of see, you know, what kind, how we're supposed to serve. Now, after, after the service, somebody told me, saying those, those tests can be kind of difficult sometimes. They could be a trap. Now, just because you score low in something doesn't mean that's not your spiritual gift. It might be just because you have atrophy. And you haven't used that gift. But it's just kind of a general framework, all right? So if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, here's my advice to you. Just do what you feel like you should do. I spent most of my life not being sure of what my gift is, but I've just tried to do what is needed at the time. And I, I feel like I can say the Lord has worked through me, has helped me to do the things that I've needed to do. Now, in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul, after he is converted to Christ, he doesn't know what to do. In the authorized version, verse 6 says this, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Sadly, that phrase is not in the ESV, NASV, or NIV, but it's in the authorized version. What wilt thou have me to do? That's the question. And the voice from heaven says, Rise and go into the city, and it shall be shown what you should do. So if you want, if you want to know what God wants you to do, the first thing is to say, Lord, show me. I don't know what I, how I should be serving you right now. Please help me to know it. He'll make it clear to you. Number four, and lastly, let's stand together. While I give you the last point, let's stand together. See how we economize? You may be thinking you've lost your gift. Maybe today you've realized that you haven't been serving the Lord for a long time, and now you want to, but you're wondering if you still have your gift. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. You haven't lost it. If you haven't been using it, and you realize now that you need to, 
Start doing it. Don't look back at past failures because past failures will debilitate you. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 14 to 15, This one thing I do, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press forward to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Yesterday it don't matter. He said, well, yesterday messed up today. Probably did. But that's in the past. Go forward. Want to hear a good cliche for that? Don't look backward. You're not going that way. (laughs) Forward by faith to the Lord.